As you are turning there, let me give you a plug for Sunday school. If you're not already uh, regularly attending the nine o'clock hour, uh, these equipping classes are provided to be able to give uh, us more instruction in God's Word and being able to be further equipped as saints for the work of ministry uh, that the Scriptures uh, call us to. And so I would highly recommend that uh, in our Doctrines 1 class this morning, Doctrines 3 class this morning, uh, one of our elders was teaching on the subject of death and uh, death and dying and what to expect as a believer who dies in Christ and was fitting with some of the songs that we sang. Uh, Next week, we'll be looking at some of the views of the millennium. Another class is looking at New Testament introduction and overview of the whole New Testament. And there are classes for all of our kids' ages and in nursery as well. So we would encourage you, uh, if you are able to make that a priority for your family, would be, uh, we pray, a wonderful encouragement and time of growth for you as well. Philippians chapter 1, I'm assuming you're there already. If you would stand in the honor of reading God's word with me this morning. Philippians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 12. It reads, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. There's a story of a first century Christian named Polycarp, who was born in AD 69 and became a Christian under the teachings of the Apostle John. Like John, Polycarp's life was soon found to be in danger. The Romans were executing Christians whom they called atheists because the Christians refused to worship the Greek and Roman gods. And after recent executions in the arena, the crowd in the stadium had chanted for Polycarp's death. He was a renowned follower of Christ and Bishop of Smyrna. When the Roman officials had arrested a servant of his, they learned of his whereabouts and came looking for him. However, when they entered his house to arrest him, Polycarp asked that food and water be given to his guests, and he asked the soldiers if he might have some time to pray before they took him away to his death. The soldiers allowed it, possibly out of respect for his age, but most likely because of the food and drink that they were given to sustain them. It is said that Polycarp stayed in his house and prayed for over two hours When Polycarp was brought to the stadium, however, he was given a final chance to live by the Roman proconsul. They told him that if he swore allegiance to Caesar and said, take away the atheists, of which, again, they were referring to Christians, that they would let him live. Polycarp was fine to say the latter and did. 
but would not renounce the name of Christ by swearing to Caesar. When the proconsul continued, swear and I will let you go, reproach Christ. Polycarp turned to the proconsul and boldly declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I am a Christian. The Roman officials threatened to turn wild beasts on him and then to burn him with fire, and Polycarp remained unmoved. Finally, they announced to the crowd that Polycarp was confessing his faith as a Christian, and when Philip the Asiarch refused to turn a lion on them, on him, they sent him to the marketplace to be burned. Interesting, as the soldiers are preparing the wood under and around him, Polycarp prayed this. At least this is what we have. O Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of angels and powers in all creation, and of the whole race of the righteous who live before you, I bless you that you considered me worthy of this day and hour to receive a part in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ for the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and of body, in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them, may I be welcomed before you today by a fat and acceptable sacrifice, just as you previously prepared and made known and you fulfilled the deceitless and true God. Because of this and for all things, I praise you. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus, your beloved son, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy Spirit, both now and for ages to come. Amen. As legend has it, after he prayed, they lit the pyre, which sprang up quickly, but the fire, legend has it, would not touch his body, but formed an ark around it. The Romans did not know what to make of this, but eventually ordered an executioner to stab him to death instead. Polycarp's bones were later burned because they couldn't burn his body, and he died in A.D. 155. How could someone who knew what was coming, a horrible and painful death, in such a way as that, stay calm, pray like that, feed his enemies, and not renounce Christ in the face of horrible death. Well, I would ponder to say that like Paul the Apostle here in Philippians 1, because the gospel had so transformed him that he saw even his circumstances in a way completely different from those who were around him and those who put him to death. The gospel transforms everything, even the way in which we view our circumstances. The same is true for Paul here in Philippians 1 that we just read. Paul sees his imprisonment for the purposes of advancing the gospel. He sees his position as one that is there in prison to defend the gospel. In both ways, Paul's purpose, his plan, the way he views himself is not about Paul and his longevity but it's about the gospel. How is the gospel advancing? What will be the results of this circumstance for the gospel? And not just for Paul, and my livelihood, or my safety. 
But we'll look at two ways this morning that Paul's outlook to us is evident as an example for us in the way that we view our circumstances. Number one, Paul's outlook is evident in the way he viewed the results. We see this in how he sees what happens because of the circumstances that he faced. The circumstances being imprisoned, imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and the results that come of that show us how Paul's outlook is evident, how he has a gospel-transformed way of viewing his circumstances, and we as God's people ought to as well. John Calvin, writing on this passage, says, having first of all, with the view of securing their confidence in the earlier verses of chapter 1, declared the pious attachment of his mind and affection to these believers, he proceeds to treat of himself and of his bonds, lest they should feel dismayed on seeing him a prisoner and in danger of his life. So Paul, in his kindness to them, tells them why he's in prison and what's going on. What is the result of it? He shows them that accordingly, that the the glory of the gospel, so far from being lessened by his imprisonment, that it is rather an argument and confirmation of its truth, that he at the same time stirs them up by his own example to be prepared for every event. Quite shocking that what they thought would be the case, that the gospel would lessen because he's in prison. Paul writes to speak to them that the opposite is true. Satan indeed attempted to stop the gospel. The wicked have thought that it would turn out so, that the gospel would be stopped and destroyed. They thought so when Jesus was murdered. But God has frustrated both the attempts of the former, Satan, and the expectations of the latter, the evil ones or the wicked ones, in two ways. While the gospel was previously obscure and unknown, it has come now, as he has stated here in chapter 1, to be well known. And not only so, but has even been rendered honorable in the praetorium, no less than in the rest of the city. Paul sees in all these circumstances, as difficult and demeaning as they might be, as much as they stopped all his plans and changed his own expectations of ministry, he sees the results of it all being wonderful for the cause of the gospel. Now, some would certainly expect that. If you lock up the the greatest missionary, evangelist, the apostle Paul, that the gospel would suffer. That if you lock up the missionary MVP or the gospel goat, the greatest of all time, that his team would suffer, the mission would be diminished. We saw this happen not all that long ago with the Chicago Bulls, didn't we? If you're old enough to remember, when Michael Jordan retired, they had just won three championships in a row. But the 1993-94 team and the 1994-95 team Both had the same roster except Jordan on it, and neither team made it to the championship or to win a championship again, except when Jordan returned and they won three more. Now they have two, three-peats, two championship series of three, one, back-to-back, because their MVP was back in the game. Paul knowing this is our expectation as human beings, as though the gospel advance is going to take a little bit of a break because one of its stars is in prison. 
Paul knows this is our expectation as human beings. We know that that's our expectation as human beings. Because we often look at, if only this person would come to believe the gospel, what a wonderful witness that would be to the world. As though we know what is going to be the best witness for the gospel down the road. What God might choose to do. As though we're the ones pulling the strings and making things happen. As though we're the ones with the marketing major in regards to eternity and the gospel. But Paul knows this is our expectation. He tells us this is not at all the case here for the gospel, but the gospel is advancing everywhere, both externally and internally. Externally, he says, as he writes there in verse 12 and following, externally to those who are in prison and to those who are around the prison. Notice he says, verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Well, that imperial is the word praetorium. We'll look at that in just a little bit, but it's being known to those who are within the prison, the guards, other prisoners. And notice what he says to those in the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. He says to everyone, to other guards, to other types of guards, not just imperial guards, or to everyone in prison, to everyone in the city, he leaves it vague, letting you know as the reader that it has really advanced everywhere. That in some way, the gospel is continuing to advance externally, outwardly, to other people, to those who formerly would not have known, but also internally as he continues on. Not only externally to those who are in the prison and those who are outside of Christ, but also internally the gospel has advanced because other brothers, those who are Christians, have also advanced the gospel in their own life by becoming more confident, bolder, being able to speak the gospel truths without fear. The gospel has continued to advance externally and internally. And as Paul sees it, the results are wonderful. It is the results that shape his perspective. With results like that, it shapes how he views his imprisonment. He even says that his imprisonment is serving the advance of the gospel. Prison has opened the door. As a butler would open the door for its master, so prison has opened the door for the advance of the gospel in new places to new people. See how God has used Paul's circumstances, which to him personally, if viewing them only through the lens of his own self and his own safety and his own likes and dislikes, would not be as advantageous. It would not be seen as wonderful. But in viewing them in light of the gospel and the results that God is bringing by the advance of the gospel, it is indeed. For Paul, the mission stayed the same. It was only the address that changed. The results are up to God, but he is seeing God using his new location to advance the gospel. We mentioned externally, the praetorium originated as a general's tent or headquarters within a tent. In in other places in the New Testament, it has come to mean the governor's palace. But in the first century, it came also to be the praetorium guard or the emperor's own elite troops who were stationed in Rome. Paul would have been guarded around the clock, but still given time to write and do normal activities with these guards around. But here, amongst the elite troops, among the best of the best for the guards of Rome, the gospel has advanced. 
everyone in Rome possibly, who has known or has come to know about Paul and his imprisonment, know that it was because of the gospel, that he is imprisoned for continuing to further the gospel message or the Christian message. One author, Gordon Fee, says this is probably all happening during the peak of Nero's madness. For good reason, then, Paul joyfully explained to the Philippian believers that the net effect of his own imprisonment has been to give their Roman brothers and sisters extraordinary courage to proclaim Christ at the heart of the empire itself where storm clouds are brewing. You imagine one emperor who's desiring the most to rid the world of Christians. And in the midst of all the persecution that Nero is giving to them here in the midst of his own household, even. Paul will write a few chapters later at the end of Philippians in chapter 4, verse 22, with the encouragement that those closest to Nero in his own household, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those in Nero's household, Caesar's household, excuse me. All of those even closest to him are hearing the gospel and most likely believing the gospel. Paul might not have had access to those inside the prison in any other way. But now, seeing how God is using this situation for him, he views the current situation so differently than he would have because he is seeing the results of what God is doing. Now, it is most likely not that Paul's initial reaction to prison was, yippee, I can't wait. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I hear that the food is wonderful. I can't wait to go and be chained up to smelly old men. Nobody's thinking that. But because of the results that God is bringing, all of a sudden his transformed perspective because of the gospel is allowing him to view this in a way that is incredibly gospel-centered, transformed from the way that we would typically look at it. Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it's recorded that Jesus... The one who for joy set before him endured the cross, suffered the ignominy and shame, was betrayed and put to death for us and for our salvation, for the plan of redemption and the glory of his father. Jesus looked at the results of the circumstances, not merely the circumstances himself. Knowing what lied ahead, he sweat drops of blood and was grievous towards it in the garden. But he goes through with it, knowing what the results would be. Would the same be true of us in any circumstance that we face, as difficult as it would be, to be able to look at it with eyes of what God might do through this for the advance of the gospel, both externally to others, but also to us in our own heart. He speaks of Christians becoming more bold in their witness. They have seen what has happened to Paul, and they have seen what imprisonment looks like or or they hear of what it is like by Paul, and yet they're continuing to grow more and more confident. The gospel is continuing to advance in their own hearts and to others by means of them and their boldness now. What a wonderful result of Paul's imprisonment for the church. D.A. Carson says, a whiff of persecution sometimes puts backbone in otherwise timid Christians. And this is true in church history. As we have seen that Throughout the church, one would think persecution would stop Christians, make them more fearful. But what we have seen is the opposite. 
That as the church has been persecuted and brought under condemnation, that actually the church, we see this even today in China especially, is continuing to thrive. The gospel is advancing even more so as others are trying to squelch it. Paul rejoices at the advance of the gospel and the growing boldness of his brothers and sisters in Christ. He is happy, as he says later, to rejoice that his imprisonment has served to help those results come to pass by the work of the Holy Spirit in these believers and the grace of God. Paul's outlook to this whole situation is seen in how he views the results, not thinking of himself or his needs or the conditions that he is facing, but instead being able to see this ultimately from the advance of the gospel. We never know how God will use our circumstance. I will even say we don't know how God will use our circumstances, be they bad for us or even good, and how God might use that. But would we as God's people view both the adverse and difficult ones and the good and the joyful ones, both in light of how God would you want to use this in my life for your glory in the advance of the gospel. Too often we can only think, because of passages like this, that it's the bad ones, that I need an attitude check when bad circumstances come my way, and I need to be able to think about this in light of God's sovereignty and goodness in the gospel. And that is probably mostly true. But I think all too often it's the good circumstances that can pull us away from God so much quicker, that when difficulty comes, our natural response is to what? Cry out to God for help. Cry out to others that they would be praying for us, that others would be helping us. We all of a sudden are faced with death face to face and going, if this is what God is going to use to take me, then may this be for his glory. And how can I, through these circumstances, as difficult as they might be, in some way see God continue to work in me and in the lives of others, especially those that I love or who are within my family? But too often the sneaky one is the good circumstances that come. The job promotion or the excess of funds or something really good happening and coming your way that you might not have been expecting. And now all of a sudden the temptation is, I don't need to pray about this. I don't need to pray about receiving a gift of $100,000, do I? No, you receive it gladly and joyfully. Wonderful. But guess what I'm not doing? I'm not praying that God would continue to give me my daily bread because I've got two years worth in the bank now, right? And so being able to know in any circumstance that God brings us, how might we be able to continue to ask God, would you continue to work in me both in the good and in the difficulty, the difficult ones, to bring about your glory and changing me, shaping me, continuing to sanctify me, and continuing to allow the further, furtherance of the gospel in and through this. People are watching us, not only in difficult circumstances, but also in the good. How might we be an example to them, as Paul is to us here in this passage? Before, we see, before he saw the results of his imprisonment, though, Paul's outlook was determined by what he viewed as his mission. Paul's outlook is determined first and foremost by his own identity and what he knew to be his task. This is the second point we'll look at this morning. His outlook is determined by what he viewed as his mission. His mission, he states in verse 16, is to defend the gospel. The word defend here is apologia, which is where we get our English word apologetics. 
It is to defend the faith, to teach it or explain it in such a way that helps others to better understand Christianity. Paul's already used this word back in chapter uh, 1, verse 7, just a few verses ago, when he spoke to the Philippian church and said that they stood by him. They were partakers of grace with him, both in his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, that they didn't leave him, but stuck with him. It is the same word Peter uses in a classic apologetic text. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he writes this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Because Paul sees his mission as defending the gospel and not his own personal reputation, he can respond as he does in prison and hearing the reports of what some are doing outside of prison as a means of harming him inside the prison. Because he knows his mission and is rock solid in his identity in the gospel, Paul can weather the storm of personal difficulties with grace, continuing to remind himself of who he is, who he is in Christ, and what is the mission that God has given to him. But notice the situation that he's facing. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. It's a strange thing to think about. That there would be those who are preaching Christ in a way that would be inappropriate and sinful. Both of those things, envy, rivalry, are things that uh, are not characteristics of the Holy Spirit. They are not fruits of the Spirit. He says even later, the former, those who are desiring to do this, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Well, the question has to be asked, who are these guys? Who are these opponents of Paul who are doing this? One, we have to recognize that they would have to be members of the Christian community in the city in which Paul's imprisoned. They have to be people that he is hearing of, that he knows are preaching the gospel in this way, desiring to harm him in the way that they do it. But that they're brothers. They're those who believe the gospel because he doesn't call for them to stop it and become Christians. But he recognizes that they're actually preaching Christ. So they have to be members of the Christian community. Secondly, they could not have been heretics. Notice that Paul does not warn anyone about them. He states their motives are fueled by jealousy or a desire to harm him, but nothing about their message. In fact, he places these opponents in the same category as those who preach out of love or goodwill. They, the opponents, think that Paul has done damage to the Christian cause by getting himself arrested and probably have a desire to magnify their own ministry now that the MVP or the GOAT is on the bench. So how does Paul handle something like this? Well, no doubt, like any person, he has feelings, just like you and I, and would no doubt be hurt. Maybe he knows some of these people. Some of these believers are people he has worshiped with. He would no doubt, like any other person, be hurt, but he is also a man of principle. And for him, like we said earlier, the results are the gospel is advancing. Paul's example is impressive and clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. 
D.A. Carson says our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. Now, they are significant in that they do affect you and they will hurt you, but they're insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. As Christians, we are called upon to put the advance of the gospel at the very center of our aspirations. So how is Paul okay with these opponents, with these people who are coming and preaching Christ in a way that is wrong, that is envious, or from rivalry? How can he respond in the way that he does where he says what then, verse 18, only that in every way Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. What a man who has been transformed by the gospel in every way, even in how he views his circumstances. The three ways, three reasons I think Paul can be able to write like this, being affected in such a way by these people in the way that they're preaching. He's honest, at least, before we look at the three, he's honest, at least, to say, this is how they're preaching, out of envy and rivalry. I appreciate his honesty, but I also appreciate the way in which he is able to write like this. But first, Paul's theology must be in good order. He has learned by the grace of God to see everything from the divine perspective. It is not that Paul is too heavenly minded to be in touch with reality. He's facing reality and he admits that. These people are preaching in this way and it's not right. He's also not seeing with rosy tinted glasses as though just everything will be okay and flying above the clouds. Not in touch with reality. But instead, he's seeing everything in light of the bigger picture, keeping his mind focused on eternity and the end of which is to come of all redemption that is in Christ. But his theology is in order. He has a firm grasp on the sovereignty of God as we see here in this book, in this letter, and also in other of his writings. Secondly, Paul's also a man of single passion, Christ in the gospel. He's got good theology that anchors him, in the midst of something like this, that could really rattle you. But he's also a man of single passion of Christ in the gospel. And thirdly, Paul's passion for Christ led him to an understanding of discipleship in which, as Jesus says, the disciple takes up their cross and follows their Lord. That discipleship is not easy, that it is difficult, and that what Christ calls us to is to give ourselves to him. We'll see this in other parts in Philippians as we go through the letter verse by verse and seeing how Paul calls us to a life of suffering as his people. Jesus responds in a similar way, doesn't he? As we mentioned, he's confident of his calling and his mission, but he endures the pain and suffering, the lies, the slander. He does so joyful for what lies ahead. Jesus responds in such a way, not only as an example to us, but in the way that Jesus responds as he continues to face the difficulties that lie ahead of him in the cross, all of those people who are calling on him, jeering him, ridiculing him, as he does so, not only for an example to us, but for our redemption. This is not just something that is a great example, but the way that God works in his world to bring people to faith by watching Christians walk through suffering and death and doing so, 
crying, weeping, loving one another, admitting the honesty, but with sound theology, trusting in a good and gracious God who will hold them, comfort them, be with them, never leave them or forsake them, and who is calling them home one day. There is good theology. There is the ability to walk through honestly. And there is holding and prizing the gospel more than our own personal safety or wealth. Martin Luther writes in a song, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. We are never guaranteed the circumstances and the results that we want. But that does not mean that we get a pass on obedience or faithfulness to Christ and the mission that he has called us to. Do not let your circumstances determine your attitude or our responses. Do not let our circumstances determine how we will look at the gospel. But let us as God's people continue to marvel at the beauty of the gospel, that God came and died for us sinners. Let that continue to keep us in awe and wonder of who God is, that he would love us and redeem us, that we can with Paul in other places be able to look at the glory of the gospel and say, as Paul does in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us because of the gospel. We have to look at what it is that God has commanded us to do. What is it that we're called here to do? Be able to know who we are and what it is that we have given our lives to, and that is the gospel. And let that keep us steadfast, unmovable in the midst of difficulties. What God has called us to is not a life of ease or success or money, though God might choose in his kindness to give those things for the furthering of his kingdom, but that we would make disciples, that we would give glory to God in all that we do, that we would love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, and mind. May we as God's people, as his disciples, define what we don't know with what we do know. I don't know what lies ahead tomorrow, but I do know who Christ has called me to be today. I don't know what the results of the circumstances that I face will be, but I know my mission. I know who God is. I know God's uh, character, what God calls me to be, but I have no idea how long I will face the circumstances I am currently facing or what will come around the bend. But let us as God's people know who we are in Christ, know our theology, let that be in good order, rock solid, knowing it, growing in it, go deeper in it, but never neglecting to obey God's word. That we continue to be able to be solid in our theology. As we see here, Paul must be in the gospel and in the sovereignty of God to be able to look at his circumstances and see the results that God is bringing and rejoice in it to be able to look at his circumstance and not find contentment in the circumstance, but in the God who controls them and in the God who has ordained and controls his destiny for all of eternity. May the Lord continue to transform us by the gospel in and through our circumstances and how we view them. May it be for his glory. Would you join me as we pray?